Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you're blessed by our content, we'd appreciate if you liked and subscribed, and feel free to follow us on any of our social media content as well. We're on Facebook, Instagram, um, and you know we're also um, all very active on YouTube as well. So feel free to follow us on any of our social medias. Um, we are honored today to have on Dr. Robert Carter from Creation Ministries International. He's one of the leading researchers and speakers for Creation Ministries. He is um, has a PhD in marine biology, I believe. He's, he's very much an expert in, in these areas where I am not, so I am very thankful for him coming on and answering some questions today. Um, thank you, Dr. Carter, for being here. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Yes, sir. So I guess the first question, you've probably been asked this a lot, were you always a... Um, you know, a young earth creationist? Absolutely not. Right. So, 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 I mean, growing up, you, you were an evolutionist. Can you talk about how there's, there had to have been a time of a shift, right? Um, growing up, the question never really came up. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone I, and we always taught evolution in school. We never had any kind of a spiritual discussion at home. I just kind of assumed it was true. Right. It was uh, my undergraduate at Georgia Tech when people started challenging me. I said, I really thought those people were crazy that were challenging me. It was the young Earth guys that yeah, were challenging Earth you. Guys like, you were what? Like, no, you don't believe in evolution. You don't think Earth's billions of years old? Oh, come on. Yeah. And I throw something in their face. And most of the time they couldn't answer it. But every once in a while, someone would have an answer. And I'd have to take a step back and say, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. I mean, most people, you know, they grow up thinking that science and, reli- science and religion are at odds. Um, you know, it's just yeah. basically the way our education system works, unfortunately. Yeah. Was there an aha moment for you where it's like, well, and the, the shift kind of started as like, well, maybe I need to consider, you know, creation, young earth creation as a model for, for belief? Um, yeah, it was, I, I was over at this girl's house. And I kind of liked her. And so her mom was kind of tolerant me, kind of. <laughs> but her mom was like, I'm not putting up with this boy much longer. So she starts asking me a lot of gospel questions. And I had no idea what any of these answers were. I, mean, I had gone to church growing up, but I knew nothing. Hmm. and it turned on to science, of course, and I, I thought I was in my strong point here, right? And I said, evolution's a fact. And she said, oh, really? I said, yeah. And I, she goes, give me an example. And I said, Pachycetus. So I remember the National Geographic had this transitional form between land animals and whales. And she goes, don't you know they just discovered the rest of the skeleton? Hmm. And I was horrified. I didn't even know that the picture I had in my head was a cartoon that was based only on a few uh, pieces of a jaw and a few teeth. And it had a full-fledged, swimming, flippered animal. And the rest of the skeleton showed it was a fully-fledged land animal with no transitional features at all. Zero. The, the inner ear bone is a little bit more like a whale's inner ear bone than other mammals. Okay. But it's not transitional in any sense of the form. And once I figured all that out, I realized I'd probably been lied to. And there's a lot of things I had to unlearn, and that was probably the the, the beginning domino. Right. I mean, it had to have been kind of a shock, right? I mean, you, you yeah. basically spend your whole life, I mean, thinking that maybe there's a compatibility between Christian evolution or just maybe there's not any compatibility at all, and then it's like you've got to basically reframe your entire way that you view, I guess, science. Being that I knew nothing about Christianity, and I was not in any way, shape, or form a serious young Christian, um, that there was no controversy in my mind until I started becoming a Christian. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, there's this gigantic thing out there that the Bible completely disagrees with. And so one of these two is going to be right or wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit too black and white in my mind. I'm very, I love logic and I don't like holding thoughts in my head that don't mesh together. I mean, as a human being, you're always forced to have some of those. You cannot rationalize everything. But as far as the history of the world goes, that should be pretty cut and dry. It's either thousands of years old or billions of years old. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing in between that. It's one or the other. And it took me a while to to finally come around to that thought. Right. Is uh, When you study, um, you know, biology and, 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 and genetics and different sciences, I mean, um, you're, you know, you're a young earth creationist. Do you start to realize that, hey, I was lied to, and maybe the facts actually lean towards or even maybe emphatically point towards a young earth and not an old earth? Yeah, but that knowledge came slowly. It was little little hints here and there because the way, I mean, I was, a, I was at Georgia Tech, right? It's a technical school. 
there was no Christianity in any of the classes. Mm. There's no even a hint of anything spiritual anywhere. And everything was just, just naturalism, secularism, um, and evolution. That was just all kind of wrapped up all together. And so it took, it took a lot of sleuthing. And it, w- it was what they weren't saying. It's, you know, you take a class in evolution or a class in chemistry or a class in whatever, and they tell you all the stuff that lines up with evolution, but there's a, a great deceit. And once I realized it, ah, oh, this, this, that's a brilliant way to do it. Give a student 100 facts that are true. This is true, that's true, that's true, this is true, da, 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 and they all support evolution. Therefore, evolution is true. Wait a minute. All the facts you gave me can also be explained by the creationist. Therefore, creation is true according to your own logic. But no, 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 no. So what they're doing is they're, they're, they're avoiding all the hard topics. They don't talk about the origin of life. They don't want to talk about the origin of complexity, um, the origin of biochemistry, things that aren't going to happen by themselves. Uh, they're, they're just not going to. It's like I remember um, reading Darwin. He's talking about the origin of vision or the origin of eyeballs. And eyeballs are a problem. Because, first of all, they supposedly evolved a whole bunch of different times. And considering that an octopus has an eyeball, and they're related to clams. They're mollusks. Mm. So the octopus had to evolve an eyeball very similar to ours, different in some ways, on a completely different path. The eyeballs had to evolve like 17 times. That's tough. But if you had a light-sensitive spot that started, you know, you had form, formed a cup around it, you might, you might be able to get a better image. If the cup ever closed all the way, get a, a pinhole camera, better image. And if you have a lens evolve in front of it, you have an even better image. Except what they ignore is that as the evolution of these things is happening, you're going to get into places where your vision is worse than it was before. So you have the, like, the geometry of the eyeball is a problem because you can't just evolve from one point to the other. You go through a point of blindness or blurry vision in between. So you would never evolve to that next spot because in between it's worse than where you started with. But that's, that's irrelevant. That's not the hard part. Darwin started with a miracle. He said, consider a light-sensitive spot. Like, Whoa, wait a minute, Darwin. Consider a miracle of chemistry. <laughs> consider an imp- something so incredibly implausible, the fact that living things could produce a molecule that could capture a photon. But the molecules that we use to capture photons are destroyed by the photons. I mean, your, your eyeballs are picking in probably billions of photons per second. Every time a photon hits one of our pigment receptors in, the, in our eyeball, it's destroyed. It has to be exported from the cell, remade, and imported again. Wow. And you have to take all that and wire it up to a brain. And the brain has to say, the brain has to say, Oh, I have an image and know what to do with it. It's not just random electrical stimuli. It's actually a, you know, here comes a shark. I need to swim away. That is a very complicated process. You don't just start with a light-sensitive spot unless you want to wave a magic wand of evolution over the problem. And that's essentially what it boils down to. The hardest, most intractable problems in evolution are not brought up in class. And they talk about natural selection, change over time, um, and things like that. And it's like, whatever. You know, that, that fits beautifully into the creation model. I mean, God didn't create all species to be static. Our brilliant designer, God, created things to adapt and change over time. That's part of our model. So everything Darwin said is part of the creation model also. What else you got, Darwin? Wishful thinking. Hmm. Wow. So, and I believe this is a point that many people make, is that this is really a clash of two worldviews, is ultimately what we have. We have a, we have a biblical worldview and then a secularist, atheistic worldview. Um, and that worldview kind of basically makes us look at facts different ways, oh, you know, if, if, yeah. we're, if we're starting it. Um, so talking, I mean, about these issues that evolutionists kind of avoid, I mean, what does the evolutionist say for the origin of life? I mean, what what do they have? The most common response we see is, um, oh, the origin of life, that's that's the origin of life. Uh, evolution only uh, talks about things that are alive and can evolve. Hmm. Wait a minute. You called the chemical evolution for 100 years. Mm-hmm. You know, Darwin speculated about a warm little pond full of phosphoric salts and things. And I mean, 
if you don't have an origin of life, where's your origin of life? Did aliens do it? Did God do it? Did Gaia do it? I mean, what, what are you talking about? If you don't have a mechanistic origin of life, then you're going to talk about religious stuff all of a sudden. And you won't talk about religious stuff. So we can try to hold our feet to the fire saying, no, you need a mechanistic origin of life. And you need chemistry to do it. And you've got nothing in chemistry. Right. And, and all these all these evolutionists, and I don't know how they do it, they basically they have dates for everything. They have dates for how old the earth they think it is or dates for different species. How do they come up with the caterpillars certain million, million years old? The earth is, well, how do they even come up with these numbers? Um, I was just talking to Joel Tay, one of my good friends who's another speaker. Um, and he reminded me something I'd forgotten about. He goes, oh, yeah, back in the 1800s, they would say dinosaurs, they were like 6 million years ago. <laughs> and another 65 and more million years ago. But the dates have expanded for, hmm. uh, it, they've been pretty set for a long while, probably 50 years or so. I'm not sure exactly. But um, the date has expanded greatly. The age of the earth has expanded greatly over since the 1800s. What is their excuse for that? Just more discoveries? Um, just... Trying to fit more processes in, they need more time. Mm -hmm. um, the discovery of radiometric uh, decay helped them tremendously. Um, I, back, back in the day, um, right before radio, radioactivity was discovered, Lord Kelvin estimated the age of the earth based on how long it takes the earth to cool. And you know, he did all his calculations and says the earth cannot be millions of years old. It would be a solid rock, but the earth is still hot inside. That's why we have volcanoes. It's not liquid inside. It's, it's just really, really hot rock that are kind of bendy and twisty because it's so hot, they're soft. Mm -hmm. But he said it cannot be millions of years old. And then they discovered uh, radioactivity, which produces a lot of heat. And all of a sudden, they can have a billions of years old earth as long as they have really long half-life radioactive isotopes in the earth that can break down slowly and keep it hot. Hmm. So that was really the great expansion happened end of the 1800s, early 1900s. Right. Some things, I mean, evolutionists, man, they have all kind of things to, to they say about the origin of life of Christianity. Um, I mean, we're talking about the Genesis 1 account. I guess the first thing is, and I don't think this is a good argument, but one thing evolutionists always say is, well, if God created people, then who created God? And that's the first thing they always say, which seems like a very, very you know, elementary type argument. But how do you respond to that? We we just uh, posted a uh, YouTube slash TikTok slash Facebook uh, video on that very topic. It's a short one. So if you go to creation.com, type in who created God, it'll pop right up. Um, and it's a, a very common question, but the answer is um, God created time. God is outside of time. If God is eternal, you can't have a starting point. Hmm. God calls himself eternal. If God has always existed, there's no creation for God. He's, he must be outside of the space-time continuum that we're trapped in. He knows the future and the past at the same time because he's not like us. We're, we are trapped on what's called the arrow of time. It only goes in one direction. Now, Einstein said it could speed it up or slow it down a little bit. Fine, based on acceleration. But it still only goes in one direction. Even Satan and the fallen angels and demons, they, they're trapped in this time. They don't know the future. They can't go back and forth in time. Like when um, Jesus went to cast out the, the demons of the man in the Gadarene, and, and they said, what have you to do with us? Have you come to tor torment us before our time? So even... The devil is stuck in this linear time. God's not. It's like, if you were, um, if you wanted to know the beginning and the end at the same time, the only way you could do it is to take that hour of time and turn it this way. Because yeah. if you look at an arrow end on, yeah. you don't see the arrow. It becomes a point. Hmm. And the top and the bottom are lined up with each other. They're actually, they're at the same time. So God being a higher dimensional being is not stuck in our linear time. His time, he can collapse time to a point if he wants to. So it's all simultaneous. He's, he's was never created because he's out of the creation, hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a fun topic. Right. <laughs> yeah. Some good articles on creation.com also who created God. Okay. Type that in our website. It'll come right up. Yeah.
Awesome. Yeah, I definitely would recommend, I mean, any of the resources there. Thanks. Um, um, yeah, Is it Creation Ministries International or just Creation it's, Ministries? Well, creation.com. Creation.com. But it's okay. Creation Ministries International. Okay. Because we are international. We've offices in seven countries. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I just want to make sure I was I was saying it right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then when we get more into the original life, I mean, the Bible explains that pretty clearly. Um yep. Some things old earth creationists will say, if we're just if we're just going to take the Genesis account and just go straight down it, is they'll say that there is a gap between Genesis one and Genesis two. Uh, how do you how do you respond to that argument? Um, first of all, um, almost no theologians teach that anymore. That was so back in the eight, early eighteen hundreds. The scientists are starting to say the Earth is really old. Hmm. What do theologians do? They say, well, yeah. hey, we have this idea. Can we? rationalize that can we bring that into the bible and they come up with gap theory day age theory a little later on the framework hypothesis you know all these different ways to, to put these things together i don't fault that first generation of theologians for thinking these things i fault them for holding them for more than five minutes <laughs> they should have realized that oh no that doesn't work because that destroys biblical integrity and this and that and the other but the the gap theory um was it the Ryrie Study Bible? Um, most people in the 50s and 60s, was it Ryrie? Was it yeah. Dart? Whatever it was. I, I, before my time, right? right? So I only know from my grandma and my parents' time, but they weren't Bible readers much. So right. anyway, right. This, this idea that um, the that the earth was not formless and void in the beginning, but that became formless and void. So they've added a word that's not in the Hebrew, that it became formed. In other words, there was something there, and then it got covered in water. And they call that Lucifer's flood, which, of course, is not talked about in the Bible. And that's what would have killed off the dinosaurs. Hmm. And then God recreated the earth, Garden of Eden, a few thousand years ago. So it's from then on, it's all biblical. Hmm. But they, they're adding this, this unknown Lucifer's flood that, killed, that, that creates a giant layer in the earth, the Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. Some of them... Uh, would be um, periodic catastrophes. There'd be multiple catastrophes of Earth history that that put down each of the major layers. And then the the last one would be just be the one that killed off the dinosaurs. There's all sorts of different ways to handle that. But okay, theologians don't teach it anymore. Hardly anyone holds to it. It doesn't work grammatically. It doesn't work in the Hebrew. Um, Plus, that would mean that there's death in the world before Adam sins. Hmm. Lots of death. Billions of years of death. And that's a massive theological problem because the Bible says that death is a punishment for sin. I mean, God told Adam, if if you eat from that tree, you will definitely die. And that's what happened. Adam ate that, and that's where death and suffering comes from. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to physically die to pay for sins. Because God said that death is a punishment for sin. So here's Jesus. He dies in our place. If you have death before that, is death a punishment for sin? Hmm. That's a great point. I never thought about it that way because, yeah, I mean, in the garden, you don't have that. Yeah. In the garden, it's not just the garden, it's the universe. Hmm. Romans 8. All these references to, to creation. The creation was subjected to futility, the whole creation was. Then that word whole there is catissus. It means everything. Everything, I'm going to paraphrase here, was subject to the burden of sin and is groaning, waiting to be redeemed. Well, in other words, the creation fell. And what we want is restoration, right? Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make all things right. He's going to restore it. But to restore something means that thing gets corrupted. Hmm. It had to have fallen into that state of corruption to be redeemed out of it. If sin and if if death and suffering have always been there over billions of years, then the earth never changed, hmm. never fell into corruption. Right, it's yeah. a, a deep theological pool you can wade into there. That's right. Yeah, and, and even with the story of Adam and Eve, I mean, I, Dr. Ronald Marks helped me with this, Professor Ronald Greenville. He was, I mean, basically, if we are, I mean, in Romans five, Jesus Christ. I mean, it, Paul says that Jesus brings life in the same way that Adam brought death. Yes. To say that Jesus that say that Paul was comparing a real event, Jesus, to an analogy, 
causes also some some serious issues. Um, so so this, the Genesis account really is a framework. I mean, it, it's foundational for the way we understand the rest of Scripture. Yeah. And so I mean, it's 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 a big deal. I mean, another thing people will say, and I don't, I don't know how to respond to this, is the people will say that how could there be light before God created the sun? Right, because the sun comes a few verses down, mm-hmm. and but God said, "Let there be light." So He creates all these things, and then He creates light. And how could there be vegetation when there's light? Basically, put on a spacesuit, go into outer space with a flashlight in your hand. Turn on the flashlight. Turn off the flashlight. Throw the flashlight into the sun. The flashlight's gone. What happens to the light from that flashlight? Travel, travel to the Earth. Right. Well, whatever where you pointed it, it'll go on forever. You don't need a light source for light. The light source is gone. You turn the flashlight off, you destroy it, or you just never turn it on again. The light will keep going. There's no light source necessary. Once the light is in, in there, you don't need a sun for it. So God could have created the light easily. A lot of people say that the light would have been the Shekinah glory, like what lit up Moses' face that everyone was afraid of, the, just the, the glowing glory of God maybe hovering over the waters or out in outer space. Who knows? It could be anything. The whole universe could be pulsing with light for whatever. See, we know when God created. We know the order of events. We don't know a lot of details, and we don't know how God did it. He did not tell us the physics of creation. Hmm. And there's tons of ways to have light without a sun. Right, right. Yeah, sometimes I guess... People like me, like a layman, would, would associate light with sun. I mean, that's, that's the only yeah. way I can think of, of it. But, and, that, um, and that's natural. But you think through it, oh, yeah, that, that's not as big as an objection as I thought it might be. Right, right, definitely. Um, another thing people say, I, I know I'm just going through a base, basically a bunch of arguments, but I believe right. this is good, important to help equip Christians, you know, to answer these kind of questions. Um, people say, well, those days in Genesis aren't literal 24-hour days. They're... Figurative days that could have been thousands of years. Who knows? The old day age theory. Right? That, that, right. My first approach to this was to adopt that. I didn't know it had a technical term, the day age theory. But that was my first attempt to rationalize deep time and biblical time. Hmm. It took me a while to realize it doesn't work because you can't get plants millions of years before you get a sun. Hmm. Because the plants are created on the day before the sun is created. Oh, and it, I mean, if you were to express in Hebrew a series of events on consecutive days, you would write it just like it's written in Genesis 1. Yeah. That's exactly how you construct it. Yeah. There's so many ways to express long periods of time in Hebrew. Most of them are forward in time, but God also says, remember in the past, but you know, he makes promises to Abraham. He makes promises to King David and, and lots of, you know, basically eternal into the future, whatever promises. There's a lot of ways to express long periods of time in Hebrew. None of them are used in Genesis 1. Hmm. If there was even a hint of it, I could drive a truck through that gap and add billions of years. <laughs> but it's not there. I mean, if God wanted to express that he created the universe in six consecutive light, light dark cycles. And I say that because I don't know the first couple of days are exactly 24 hours. There was no sun. Yeah. I, I don't know how long those days were. I assume they're about 24 hours, but I'm not going to, you know, go down to the millisecond and say, yeah, that's exactly the same because there's no sun yet. <laughs> yeah. But there's a period of light, a period of, period of dark, period of light, period of dark, period of dark. Oh, and then all of a sudden the, the sun appears. So, the, the day-age theory is, um, an, for some people, an honest approach. For me, I, I was being honest. I was trying to figure it out. But it doesn't work. It's, it's like when God created the universe, he intentionally did the order of events to thwart all naturalistic explanations. Hmm. <laughs> it just, yeah. the, the timeline's wrong. Yeah. It, it's all messed up. Yeah, and I think many times what you have to do if, if to take the evolutionist perspective and try to match it, you have to kind of read science into the Bible more than the other way around. Yeah. Um, 
and the Bible should be our foundational text. I mean, it's, it, I mean yeah. is, there, is our best evidence. Would you agree on agree that? Yeah, but it's not a science textbook. Mm-hmm. Right. The purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus Christ, tell us how to be saved. It's not to explain plate tectonics or time of travel of light across the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, it should not be wrong in science, but it doesn't give us descriptive science. It's just every once in a while it makes a scientific statement that has to be true, um, but it's really light on details. Mm-hmm. So all God gave us was this basic framework of creation, and then we can fill in the rest. And so we wrestle and we argue and we write models and get papers, and then paper gets contradicted by somebody else because that's how science progresses. Mm. Like the, the biggest contention probably right now is um, the flood, post-flood boundary. Like where did the flood end in the geologic record? There's some very different opinions on that in our camp. Or how do you explain light traveling across the universe in only thousands of years? Well, there's four or five completely different ideas that all seem to solve the problem, but they're all very different from one another. Which one of them is the right one? Oh, I don't know. And we argue about it, but that's fun. Right. It, it's part of the, it's just like in theology. I mean, you sit down with, with some idea in the scriptures and you start arguing about it, right? And, it, and it's fun. People have very different ideas and they come to very different conclusions, but they're still being faithful to the text. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, when we get that, and we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the flood um, and kind of the biology of that and, and all those things. But okay. one thing I know that you worked a lot on is genetics uh, and saw some, some videos on that that I really enjoyed. Um, speaking specifically, I mean, like for a layman like me who doesn't really understand genetics and, um, really well at all, um, how do genetics point us to evidence of, of God and, and the God of the Bible? Um, we have to take the study of DNA carefully because most all the information has been brought to us through an evolutionary filter. And if you read anything about it, it just assumes evolution is true, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the things that we see that the evolution of the claim is evidence for evolution is also fits perfectly well in the creation model. Mutation, natural selection, a little bit of change over time. That That's fine. I, I totally accept that. So, we got to get beyond that into the underlying stuff. And like, I know that humans and chimpanzees are very similar genetically. That is true. We're, we're not vastly different. We're very similar, but they kind of look like us and they kind of act like us and they eat all the same foods we do. And if we weren't smart enough to invent clothing and air conditioning, things like that, we would still be living in the rainforest naked with them. Hmm. But we're more intelligent, so we've expanded our bounds, and they're still stuck in the same place because they're still you know, basically dumb as a box of rocks, and we can fly to the moon. <laughs> but so there is that similarity there, and that is true. It's just a fact. You can't, I mean, God could have created us as different as he created us from rutabagas. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He created similar to chimpanzees. Right. Okay. But the question is, how did humans get so intelligent when we've had the same amount of time? Hmm. I mean, they say we yeah. separated from chimpanzees six million or seven million years ago. Um, we've had the same amount of mutations, same amount of natural selection, same environmental changes. Even you know, in their model, not my model, but just assuming all that stuff is true. How come they haven't changed? They're essentially the same as they would consider our common ancestor to be. They're no more intelligent. They're, they're metabolically, their brain, and they didn't go anywhere. Right. That's bizarre. But then when you look at the genetics, wait a minute. There's no reason in evolution to assume that all people can be traced back to one man or all people can trace back to one female. There's no reason for that at all. The evolutionists discovered this. They call her mitochondrial Eve, and they call him Y-chromosome Adam. There's one female and one male ancestor for everyone on Earth today. Now they say, oh, they didn't even live at the same time. It was just random chance this person happened to appear, and then that mitochondria or that Y-chromosome replaced all the other ones in the entire world over time, just by dumb luck. Now, that can happen mathematically, in a really small population. Right. It's not going to happen in a large population or a population is divided up into little subpopulations. 
So it can happen. So they, they have this African bottleneck idea. They say, oh, humanity was reduced to an effective population size of about 10,000 people. And that's where mitochondria leave and Y chromosome atom just randomly appeared in that tiny little population just out of chance. But the Bible demands that there's only one male and one female ancestor of all humanity. Right? Biblically, that's Adam and Eve. And they did live at the same time. That is, that's right. a starting point scripturally. And the evolutions go out and they figure it out. Hey, thank you much. That's ours. You can go play with something else now. <laughs> but they put them you know, 200,000 years ago, yeah. not 6,000 years ago. Because they're trying to minimize the mutation rate. Hmm. They're deliberately slowing the mutation rate down as much as possible wow. so that Adam and Eve would be further in the past. Wow. Yeah. Man. So, yeah, once again, you see the example of them basically changing the narrative yeah. um, in a sort of way. One thing that, you, that you've worked a lot on is, is with genetics and then population over time. And I know a lot of believers are curious about this. I mean, you think about what was the population when the flood happens, and then you have another section where you have the flood, and then you have all the way to the Tower of Babel, how many people are there, and then you have how in the world do we get to 8 billion people over 4,500 years yeah. since the flood. I mean, that, yeah. that's something that's always fascinated me. So, so how do we get to, th to this number? So um, one of my friends and I, we wrote a paper for our journal of creation, which is now on creation.com, um, about human population growth. We did some computer modeling of the question. The other question is, how do you get uh, two or three million Israelites coming out of Egypt when only hmm. 70 went into Egypt? Hmm. Yeah, and, I, and it wasn't, how long was it? It wasn't too long, I mean, 200. Well, we, uh, CMI just published a, a long series of articles, and we worked for months on this, on how long the Israelites were in Egypt. Right, because there's, there's a lot of debate. On there's a lot of debate, yeah. but all the evidence put together, we concluded it was 215 years. Wow. Not 430 years. Wow. Some people assume it's 430. Some people assume it's 215. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a bit much for this podcast right now. Right. <laughs> but our, our long yeah. articles on creation.com about the Egyptian sojourn. But if it's only 215 years, um, how do you get millions of people coming out of Egypt if only 70 went into Egypt? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is um, if you get married about age 20 and you have children every two years, until you're about age of 30 or 40, you get 2 million people, boom, easy. Right. But you know, that does assume a few things about population growth, but also um, there's another question people don't realize. When Abraham went to rescue Lot, he had a lot of men in his household. Hmm. It was 318 or something like that, men born in his household who are old enough to wield the sword. Wow. So that means there's also old people and there's also young people. He probably had a household of about a thousand people. If you have oh 300 warrior-aged men in your household. Oh my goodness. Well, he hadn't have any children yet. Right. Pretty soon after that, the covenant of circumcision is enacted. Hmm. Every male in Abraham's household had to be circumcised. Isaac inherits that household. And Isaac is a is a, a pretty significant uh, chieftain at the time. I mean, he's wrestling with Abimelech down in southern Israel there because there's not enough room for them. Right. Well, I mean, he's got two little boys and a, no, no, he's got a household, a large household. And then Jacob inherits the household. When Jacob and his family go to Egypt, did they leave the long-term family servants, most of whom would be married into the family by then, and all the men of whom are circumcised? to die of starvation in the wilderness during the <laughs> drought? Or did they take that household with them? Yeah. Yeah, and if, so if you start off with more than 70, how do you get two, two and a half million people 215 years later? It's trivial. Hmm. If there's 10,000 people that came in, no problem at all. If there's 1,000 people, pretty easy. If there's 70 people, you can still do it under the right conditions. Hmm. But if they're there for 430 years, then there's no problem at all. From 70, you can have way more than 2, two million people in 400 years. Right. It, in the 450 years post-flood, I mean, it, does it make sense to have 8 billion from however many are in? I mean, you have okay. Noah and, and all those, uh, and his sons. I mean, is it, does it, can we get to 8 billion? If you take Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their three wives, get rid of Noah and his wife, just those six people, three founding couples, 
you start with six people, if you double the population every 150 years, you'll arrive at 8 billion people today. Wow. So 150 years after the flood, there's 12 people. So it fits perfectly within, within the model. 300 years after the flood, there's only 24 people. That's a, it's a, such a ridiculously slow population growth. Yeah. It, I mean, it, human populations grow really fast. If mm -hmm. there's food and there's not a war and there's not an epidemic, human populations explode. So our problem is not saying why, you know, how do we have as many as 8 billion people? The problem is saying, why are there only 8 billion people? Mm -hmm. There should be a lot more than that, but because of wars and starvation, disease, there's a lot less people than there could be. Right. So following this line, I believe Tower of Babel, we're looking thousands, thousands of people, give or take. Depends on when it was. Right. I mean, the Tower of Babel story is fascinating. Yeah. Um, it seems that they were very, I mean, we had this idea that we're the most intelligent people and then nobody before us was any intelligent. Those ancient people were just dumb and everything. Um, which is, I don't believe, I believe it's probably a false view. I mean, obviously these individuals were intelligent. They were building a tower big enough to where God found it um, pretty, yes. pretty, you know, it's a big deal. Yeah. You know? um, what, so what's the situation there? I mean, is there just thousands of people working together all in one accord? Do we have a, is there a big population? I, I don't know the population size because I'm not sure when it happened. I, I tend to believe that it happened when Peleg was born. But it's only five generations after the flood. There's not a million people yet. Right. And that would be 98 years after the flood. Now, he lived for 215 or something like that years. So if he, if he was named Division, his name means Division. If he, he was named Division sometime during his lifetime, I mean, Abraham got a new name. Jacob got a new name, right? Maybe he right. got a new name. Right. Then we've got up to 300 years for the, for the Tower of Babel event to happen after the flood. There could be tens of thousands of people. I don't expect a million people yet. Um, some people argue that, oh, no, that's the division of land, not division of, of the people by... Uh... And some people say, no, it's plate tectonics. That's when the continents split. No. No, right. not true. Because right. that means that half the fossil record has to happen after the Tower of Babel. No. Um, it's a good thought, but it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, but I don't know how um, many people were at the Tower of Babel. Right. Um, but, but the, but the division is dealing more with the division was not with land. It was, it was with the, it was with the people being scattered. And it's then it seems scattered. that with all these groups, I mean, the groups could have rapidly expanded the population. Group yeah. Each, each little group would have been expanded on their own. Some of them didn't, some of them did. Right. And the ones that did took over. For instance, the first people that got up to Europe and Asia, we call them Neanderthals. They're human beings. They're intelligent. They painted in caves. They made musical instruments. They had a diverse diet. They they sailed across the um, uh, across the Mediterranean Sea to islands that are never connected to the mainland, and they had habitations there. They were seafarers and fishermen, and they had medicine. I mean, not the Neanderthals that I grew up with, right? These right, were yeah. intelligent people. Yeah, but they never achieved a large population size. And they lived from Spain to all the way to, you know, the, the border of China, Mongolia, and Russia. Hmm. That's a huge area. Yeah. And maybe they had at most 5,000 of them alive at any time. Wow. I mean, they just, they just died out? Just... They, they inbred. Hmm. They inbred like crazy because the population density was so low. If you found a Neanderthal, you married her. Right. I mean, and, and sometimes it was your sister. And so now we're able to pull DNA out of their bones. It's shocking how inbred they were. <laughs> um, but they're living in this marginal environment um, in you know, the middle of Europe and Asia during and after the Ice Age. And what happens? Well, people who had a larger population moved into that area afterwards. And they displaced those people, the Neanderthals. But people are people. And mm -hmm. they intermarried with them. And that's why you and I have Neanderthal DNA. They're partly our ancestors. Hmm. Right. Let's go, let's go back a second. I want to okay. There's some urban myths here about the about the Tower of Babel account that most people have in their mind. And I I just had this this, this thing that really bugs me. The the influence of Sir Leonard Woolley, archaeologist, 1920s, 1930s. Mm -hmm. 
He's digging in southeast Mesopotamia at a city called Ur. Hmm. And he finds a ziggurat. And he finds this flood deposit. And he claims that this entire Genesis account, the first couple chapters of Genesis, come from this Mesopotamian, southeast Mesopotamian context. And Abraham was just a guy who lived during this, this period when Ur was this major city. And the flood was local. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wait a minute. First of all, that's too late in history. The Tower of Babel was earlier than that. Um, the Tower of Babel, the Bible does not say it was a ziggurat. In fact, the, tower, the Bible says the Tower of Babel was clay that they baked and covered in tar. Ziggurats are just sun-dried mud bricks. They're not kiln-fired. Right. So something very different happening here. But also we have a city named Ur. So we have a city named Ur, way down there in southeast Iraq. But the Bible never calls it Ur. It always calls it Ur of the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? Nebuchadnezzar is called the Chaldean. Hmm. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, started the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Oh, it sounds like Babel, right? Babylon, Babel, no. Very different words in the original languages. But the Chaldeans aren't from southeast Iraq, where Nebuchadnezzar had his capital. Job had a problem. The Chaldeans came and raided. Wait, wait who? Job lived up in northwest Syria, the other end of the Fertile Crescent, the other end of Mesopotamia. In fact, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans, mm -hmm. Chaldean homeland is up in, in Syria. It wasn't until the time of, after King David they invaded southwards and took over and started the Neo-Babylonian Empire. They didn't even live anywhere near Ur when Sir Leonard Woolley said, this is Abraham's Ur. That's not Chaldean country. Wow. They're way up yeah. in the southeast, but there's a city called Haran. This is where Terah died, Abraham's father. After they left Ur, they went to Haran. That's where Terah died. Abraham leaves there. When he tells a servant, hey servant, I want you to go find a wife for my son. Isaac, go to my family homeland. Where does he send them? Hmm. Haran. Not southeast Mesopotamia, northwest Mesopotamia, far away. And then when Jacob flees from his brother, he goes to Haran again. And Haran is an amazing city because you're sitting there and just to the northwest is a city, a city called Urfa, hmm. an Escaldean country. Oh, I think I think Sir Leonard Woolley and other people who don't really believe the Bible gave us a false picture, and so people have the ziggurat in their head, and 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 what that does it causes a conflict because there's a lot of time before those ziggurats are built. You have the whole Ubaid period. And if you put Abraham in there, then the earth is older than the Bible says it is. Hmm. So yeah. instead, no, the Ubaid period—that's the first people that are starting to settle in Mesopotamia. After the Tower of Babel. Right. And Abraham's not living anywhere near there. He's far away in a city right near another city called Urfa, which is Chaldean country. And the other strange thing, the oldest archaeology that we know of is this really weird place. It's called Gobekli Tepe. It's so if you look at where Mount Ararat is and all the hills of mm -hmm. Turkey, when you go south, all of a sudden you hit the Mesopotamian plain. Just flat, muddy, expanse, you know, dry and dusty. And then there's mountains north of that. Right. Haran is sitting there in a valley and is looking at those hills. Hmm. It's in a flat expanse. Urfa is in the hills a little bit to the west. But just north of Haran is Gobekli Tepe, sitting on the edge of the last hill, looking down at Haran. <laughs> and it's this Stonehenge-like place that's much more complicated and bigger than Stonehenge. But in, instead of um, lifting up heart, you know, heavy rocks making teas, they carved them in the shape of a T. Wow. And hauled them. And instead of being flat, there's three-dimensional animals carved in those rocks. This is amazing, amazing, amazing place. And the evolutionists are like, well, um, these people weren't even farmers yet. They're just hunter-gatherer people. Hunter-gatherers don't have central authorities and they don't have cities and they don't, they can't get together to make monumental projects. Where'd this thing come from? 
And it just so happens to be looking down at one of the most important early biblical cities. So Abraham would have known it was there. Wow. It might have been buried by that time because it was deliberately buried. No one knows why. Yeah. But this is an early post-flood something that is mystifying us and is wrapped up in the uh, in a whole early Genesis account. It's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, 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 it's fascinating to think about. Obviously, we can never know fully. But I mean, pre-Babel or even pre-flood, it seems like the people were, were pretty intelligent. Um, that, I mean, maybe not in the same ways we were. But you think about pyramids, and people have different dates of when they think the pyramids were built. But the different uh, post flood, though. Pyramid was post flood. Okay. Yeah, it has to be. Okay, the, the pyramid couldn't survive the flood. Okay, right. Yes, yeah. yeah. And plus, they're built out of flood. Would it be pre Babel or post Babel? Probably, likely uh, post Babel. But if Babel's only hundred years after the flood, you still have a few centuries before you have to start building pyramids. Okay, right. But even like Babel, I mean, these people had to have been pretty intelligent to do something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but what technology does the Bible describe? Before the flood, right. what's the technologies that we have in Genesis? Herders, people living in tents, uh, workers in bronze. They had precious gold. Right. Okay. Musical instruments. I think that's it. Hmm. After the flood, what's the technology that is described? Oh, they could make bricks and bake them and covering them with pitch hmm. oh, and no one knew how to build a large ship right and he covered it in pitch inside and out and and there's another thing some people are like oh you can't build a wooden ship that big yeah you can the chinese in the 1600s were building ships the size and, and shape of noah's ark they had a flat wow. bottom because junks have flat bottoms right and they sell them at least as far as madagascar wow they sell them across the open ocean Right. And the thing about a sailing ship is the weak point is the mast. That is a very, you try to put a big pole in the middle of a ship, you create all sorts of problems, especially in a storm. And ships can break in half, and da 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 da. Noah's Ark did not have any masts. Hmm. So not only is it possible to build a ship that big and an ocean going ship that big, and we know it, uh, it didn't even matter. His ship was safer than anything that has a mast. Because it wasn't a sailing ship. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, thinking about the flood, um, that's also a fascinating story. There, there, there's a there is a um, common theme amongst evolutionists, old you know, old earthers that will say there was that the flood was local and it wasn't um, a worldwide flood. Not everybody says that, but some people will say that's a local flood. It's just scientifically. What are some evidences we have um, of a worldwide flood? Besides the billions of dead things laid right. down in rocks deposited by water <laughs> right. all over the earth, um, right. uh, there, there's so much evidence. But most of the fossil record is clams. Hmm. It's shellfish, uh, crinoids, which are a type of starfish, um, things like that. There's um, most of the fossil record is marine based. Which shouldn't be too big a surprise because the flood was water-based. Right. The oceans came up onto the land. Right. And it's bizarre because, I mean, continents today are pretty high above sea level. Mm -hmm. But all the continents have been covered in water for most of evolutionary history in their model. It's very strange. They float. Continents are light rocks, so they float on the heavier hot rocks underneath. Mm -hmm. How do they go underwater all the time? So, well, it's because of the flood. And when you look at the flood, uh, Dr. Tim Clary at, at the Institute for Creation Research, he's done most of the work on this, and it's amazing. For the first time ever, someone's mapping the world's geological record. Wow. No one's ever done that before. Wow. And so he's a, he's a petroleum geologist, and he, he knew how to do it. And it's all public information, but I never would have known it was there. He's looking at all these drilling records from all these petroleum companies that are now public. And they, they'll drill it here, and they drill, they've drilled all over every continent, all over the world, and in oceans too. And you can see, okay, that sandstone right there is also here in Nebraska. It's also in Kansas. It's also in Missouri. Oh, it's also in Georgia. Oh, yeah, that's the one that now crops in Grand Canyon. And all of a sudden, you're talking about a sandstone layer that covers the continent. And it's proportionally thinner than a sheet of paper. 
Hmm. It's only a few hundred feet thick, but it's tens of thousands of square miles in extent. And it's one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And you have limestone, huge limestone deposits. Limestone's not, it's not forming anywhere in the world today. Hmm. Well, calcium carbonate doesn't just fall out of the water anywhere. There's a couple of places like in the, uh, the Gulf, of, Gulf of Oman where it's really hot water and then like a tide pool or something can dry out and kind of can calcify on there. Uh, but that's not the same chemistry as we see in like the state of Florida. I had a professor once in, in graduate school, PhD level marine biology course. Yeah. He said, oh, let's just face it. Florida's one big coral reef. And I raised my hand. I said, oh, no, it's not. Right. I said, what? <laughs> I said, Florida is a mile thick of chemically deposited limestone. Hmm. On top of that, a thin crust of bryozoans and corals exists on the southern end. Call them the Florida Keys. The bryozoan goes up into Palm Beach area, maybe that far yeah. north. The rest is just, just like a Grand Canyon. It's chemically deposited rock that's not forming anywhere in the world today. So the, the phrase, the present is the key to the past? Right. Yeah, it is. And something different must have happened in the past because it's not happening today. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, when I, like, I went very young, went to the Grand Canyon. I mean, you see something like that, it seems that like, okay, something's going on here that couldn't have taken place. I mean, yeah, even over millions of years, I don't, I don't think, how, how could you explain that taking place? And But it looks old. And if you think that things happen slowly in geology, it would have taken millions of years. Mm -hmm. So most people don't struggle with it. Until you realize that, hey, um, you see that white band near the top and just under that, it's kind of a brown band. Uh, there's a 300 million year gap in that, between the top one and the bottom one in their model. But they're sitting perfectly flat, one on top of the other. Hmm. That was 300 million years where the lower surface actually was exposed to the air and it's still flat as a pancake. And it's like, a, it's like someone cut it with a knife and laid down the other one on top of it. Why? Because there's not 300 million years. If you just measure the, the amount of mud coming out the Mississippi River, the entire continent will be eroded to sea level in less than 15 million years. The whole continent. So how could you have a perfectly flat surface lasting for millions of years before another surface is deposited on top of that? And there's a 100 million year gap down toward the bottom near the Great Unconformity. They say it's like a 1.2 billion year gap. Wow. Most of the time in a fossil record is in the gaps. Hmm. And once you realize that, you're like, wait a second. You mean most of the time is in those flat spots? Yeah, almost all the time is in the flat spots and there's a period of, of sediment accumulating for a while. They'll say it's millions of years, fine. But still, how do you explain those flat gaps that we see all over the world and are on full display at Grand Canyon? Hmm. The time is not there. Right. God has given us the evidence, it seems, in nature, nature itself sometimes. Yeah. But if you discount God, and discount any catastrophe, then the only thing you have left is slow and gradual natural processes. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where the millions of years idea comes from. Right. Just the assumption that it's slow and gradual. Right. You've given us so much scientific evidence that, that there is for, you know, the scriptures being, being true, being accurate, um, and the clear reading of them. If you're having a discussion with a critic um, and, and they're having trouble with the scientific evidences, is, is there one thing that you always go to, a scientific evidence that you believe may be the best evidence um, for, for, for creation, for young earth? Um, there's not necessarily, because every conversation is different and no conversation ever goes the way I expect it to. Hmm. And they'll raise a question that's like, why are you talking about that, you know? And very often, it's something outside their field of expertise. Because most scientists, they know their struggles. Right. But they think the other guy's got it all worked out. Mm. I have multiple people. Like, when I, when I was a clandestine creationist in graduate school, I remember one guy said, oh, yeah, this guy's got it all figured out. Literally, that was his phrase. And he was struggling with this stuff that, that he's working on. I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it depends. Um, I, I love talking about Adam and Eve, and it's right there in genetic data. Hmm. Uh, I love talking about the origin of life, uh, the origin you know, DNA, 
DNA is not going to form in any naturalistic process. It's going to self-destruct very quickly. And yet here we are. Um, you talk about with the eyes. I mean, is that kind of with every part? I mean, every part of the body. What's, I mean, the likelihood seems impossible that you could have the DNA, the complexity of the DNA, the complexity of human, the way we work as humans seems almost impossible to, to have taken place. But um, if evolution happened, you might be able to explain humans evolving from monkeys. Hmm. Okay. So instead of that, I go to the other end. Let's talk about where it started because right. that's what they can't explain. Right. Like, um, even if you had, I love, love that at the end of our uh, Evolution's Achilles Heels movie, Dr. John Sanford, world famous geneticist, he basically said, I remember when he said this, when he got on my camera, I said, that was brilliant. I've never thought of this. He said, I will give the evolutionist proteins, sugars, DNA. I'll give them membranes. I'll give them cells with all the stuff inside it. I'll even give them millions of years. They're still not going to get life because life needs information. Hmm. DNA is not just a chemical. It's a chemical that has the instruction set to maintain and make living things. And that instruction set is not going to come out of random anything. So even if they had all the parts, you're not going to get life. That was brilliant. In fact, we've done this experiment billions of times in human history. Hmm. Every time we can something and put it on a shelf, all the parts of living things are there. Really? At a high concentration. And they're pure. And it was all right there. And yet, if anything ever started growing in that can, you just assume it's a contamination. Because it is. It's a mold that got in there. You didn't preserve it properly or whatever. But every time you can anything, that's an origin of life experiment. Hmm. And life is never going to originate that way, even though all the chemicals are right, necessarily there. Wow. Never thought about it like that. That's fascinating. Um, speaking about Adam and Eve, what, you know, in, in, that, in that evidence that you um, enjoy talking about, one thing I hear people say is, um, you know, they'll talk about Adam and Eve being, historical Adam and Eve being fictional, that um, basically you have, it's, that's more of the figurative stuff. And then after chapter three, you have all the literal stuff. Um, when you talk about Adam and Eve, just how important is them being real people, the, you know, the first people, how important is that? And then what, what, where's the evidence of that? Well, theologically, the Bible says that we died in Adam. He is our head. We're cursed with sin because our head fell into sin. Mm-hmm. If there's no Adam, you can't explain where sin came from, what the penalty for sin is. The parallel to that is Jesus. He's our head. He's our representative. Because he lived the sinless life. He put that on, onto us. He died in our place, took, took in the death that we, that we deserved, right? Well, without Adam, how do you even explain that? Hmm. You know, where does sin come from? Why is there suffering and death in the world if Adam wasn't real? The Bible says right. God set up the world with no suffering and no death. Right. That's So it's a giant contradiction. It's not just a little contradiction. It's something that runs throughout the entire scripture. The New Testament, even look, look at the end of the Bible. We have the book of Revelation. Um, Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. It's in Revelation 21. What former things? Well, the junk we got from Adam. Hmm. And then it says... And there's no more curse. Yeah. Wait a minute. That's from Genesis. And then the tree of life reappears. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's definitely from Genesis. It's like yeah. the end of the Bible is fixing the problem set up on the beginning of the Bible. And if the beginning isn't real, then the theology doesn't make sense all the way through. Hmm. So, that's, so theologically, this is why uh, Adam is important. Yeah. Historically, God could have done it any way he wanted. He could have created over billions of years if he so chose. But he didn't say that. He said he did it this way. And so we just got to take it. That's how we did it. Okay, that's how we did it. He could have done it right. any way he wants. Yeah. Because when you talk about a creator, all things are possible. Right. That's right. I mean, he, in one sense, Jesus being God could have chose any means of salvation he wanted. He could have come down to earth and said, hey, y'all, your sins are forgiven. Have a nice day. And gone back up to heaven. 
except he couldn't do that because he promised Adam that sin equals death. Hmm. So the only way to pay for sins was to die. But our death isn't good enough because we we're not pure. We're not sin-free. We're yeah. not the unblemished lamb. Amen. It took the sin-free, unblemished lamb to die in our place. And God said, okay, I'll accept that sacrifice. And Jesus said, okay, and all these are mine and are coming with me. God said, okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of theology here. Right. And without that Adam being real, oh, I, yeah, it just, that theology goes off a cliff. Right. Right. Amen. Well, Brother Carter, we're running up on time here. I, I hate it, but um, I really appreciate you coming on today to talk about this. I, I personally learned a lot. Uh, I know our listeners will as well and, and be hope edified so. by it. So thank you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, I hope to get you back up to Greenville soon. Uh, not too far being in Atlanta. So um, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being on the show today. Is there anything else you want to discuss before we head out here? I'll just say point people to our website again, creation.com. Mm -hmm. Tons yes, of answers to lots of questions. Yes, sir. We'll put a link in the description okay. um, for our YouTube channel so you can get there and access any of the articles and many, many helpful resources um, to understanding the answers to these difficult questions that maybe um, we covered and you want to go more in depth or that maybe we didn't get to, um, to look at that and just really would recommend those resources. So, Dr. Carter, thank you so much. You're welcome. So, I'm Wilson Paris, and that's a good word. <laughs>